squelch. <laughs> and then uh, the second sentence would be, like any story that starts with the word squelch, mine begins with that really. Welcome to the Four Corners Crimecast. My name is Jake. My name is Rory. And I'm your host, Katie. And today we are talking about the disappearance of Kiplin Davis. And where did you do your research on this one, Katie? I watched Nightmare Next Door, and the episode was Stealing Beauty and The Charlie Project, and then some Utah newspapers. And where did you get the idea for this episode? It's been in the news recently because of something that we'll get into at the end of the episode that has to do with one of the suspects. And where are we going for this one, Katie? This is in Spanish Fork, Utah. Oh. A four-corner state. Why don't you go ahead and start us off, Katie? Kiplin Davis was two months away from turning 16 in May of 1995. She was a sophomore at Spanish Fork High School in Spanish Fork, Utah, a semi-small town around 10 miles from Provo. Where's Provo, Rory? Utah. Where in Utah, you fuck? South of Salt Lake. You want me to give you mileage or what? People want to know. People want to know. You know the spot where you can stand in all four states at once? They want to know how far away from that spot these things happen. Like 500-something miles, probably. All right. See, Salt Lake is up north towards the north part of the state, and then you see all these little cities coming down. So you have, like, uh, Holiday, Murray, uh, Midvale, South Jordan, or West Jordan, South Jordan, Riverton, Draper. You have all these little cities that run basically all the way down between Salt Lake and... Provo, basically. So it's one real long stretch of city. So it's about, I don't know, 50 miles south of Salt Lake proper. You know those cities in alphabetical order, Roy? Not in alphabetical order, but by the breakdown by how far they are on the grid, because Salt Lake City is laid out in a grid system. So if you're on 102nd south and 40th west, you are right here. If you are on 138th south and 2700 east, you're over here. Like, it's, it's all laid out very simply, like Cartesian style. And the names of the major cross streets are all numbered. So The Mormons are a simple people, yeah? No. I'm just kidding. They wouldn't have so many fucking cities if they were. Yeah. Well, there's just a population, a crazy young kid population because Mormons uh, like it to fuck. In the city that I spent most of my time in, there was a church uh, about every three or four blocks for people to be able to fit all the congregants in because we were in an area that was probably close to 87% Mormon. Yeah, the... Population of Spanish Fork is like 40,000, and looking at Google Maps, I saw probably like seven or eight LDSs. Oh, yeah, there's probably more than that, too. Yeah. Kiplin was a social butterfly who had a large group of friends both inside and outside of school. She was in the theater program at her school and loved acting in plays. Along with this, she took an early morning driver's ed course before school started, attended church, and also participated in and helped set up weekly activities with her church. Of course, if you haven't already realized, because it's Utah, Kiplin and her family were Mormon. She lived at home with her parents, Richard and Tamara, and had a young sister. She only had one sister? Yes. How do we know they were Mormon then? On May 2nd, 1995, Kiplin's 4.30 a.m. alarm went off, set to wake her so she had time to get ready for her driver's ed class in school. Not in the mood to get up, she snoozed her alarm and slept until 5, when her father came into her room and woke her. Realizing she wouldn't have time to put her makeup on, she begged him to skip just this one day, but Richard said no, she was going. Kiplin was obviously extremely upset by the fact she didn't have time to get ready, 
as any woman knows. When you're 15, everything feels like the end of the world, but the absolute worst feeling is when you have to go to school without the proper time to get yourself ready. After her argument with her father, Kiplin threw her things together and went outside where her mother was waiting in the car for her. Tamara noticed Kiplin was crying, but assumed it was because she'd overslept and didn't ask what was wrong. Once they arrived at school, Tamara said Kiplin was totally fine and back to her normal self. Was she just crying because she was she overslept and was upset she didn't put her makeup on, or was she mad about something else? I No, we don't know, because no one's ever asked her, but more than likely, it was just because she was upset she couldn't put her makeup on and didn't feel good. That also doesn't feel good to pull up to a space that you got a parallel park in, and you can't do it because you missed that day of driver's ed class. At 3.30, Richard returned home from work and discovered Kiplin wasn't there. She was extremely punctual and was home every single day at 3.30, no exceptions. Richard assumed that she'd gone to hang out with her friends or stayed late after school, probably as a way to get back at him for not letting her skip driver's ed. Kiplin was always very good at letting her parents know if she was going to be home late and where she would be, but neither Richard or Tamara had received a call on their cell phones from her. Richard figured she'd call the house phone and check the answering machine. His heart dropped when he didn't find a message from Kiplin, but rather one from her school, letting them know she'd missed her fourth and fifth period classes that day. Trying not to assume the worst, Richard and Tamara decided to wait until 5 to see if Kiplin would show up. So what did they do until 5 o'clock? I'm not sure entirely. I think they probably started making some phone calls and just kind of hung around and waited. Hmm. Doesn't seem very proactive. Well, you don't immediately assume that your daughter's been murdered and is never coming home when she's like an hour and a half late. Yeah. Tucson, you do. This isn't Spanish Fork. Yeah, this is like a really small town where nothing bad ever happens. They didn't want to immediately jump to the fact that she's missing and never coming home. Because, I mean, by this point, it was probably four o'clock after he checked the messages and gotten a hold of Tamara. It's only an hour to wait. So it's not like it was this huge eight hour time gap that they sat there and did nothing. Five o'clock came and went with no sign of Kiplin, so Richard and Tamara knew it was time to start looking for her. They started by calling every one of her friends, who all reported that they hadn't seen her since lunch that day. She hadn't told any of them that she was planning on skipping classes that afternoon either, and no one could think of anyone she could be with. Around seven, Richard and Tamara decided to drive to the school to look around, thinking maybe she had gotten caught up with her drama club or was just hanging out. When they didn't find her there, they went to their church, figuring if she was going to run off to anywhere, it would be there. Of course, Kiplin wasn't there. By this point, Richard and Tamara knew they weren't going to find her without help, so they called the Spanish Fork police to report her missing. An officer came and took a report, but based on the circumstances and fight that morning, Kiplin was assumed to be a runaway rather than missing. A bolo was put out, but the Davises were left to continue the search on their own. thought cops had to wait 24 hours before filing a missing persons or something like that. This that one's a kid, right? Yeah, when it, I mean, what's a child? And I don't think the 24-hour rule is real at all. I think that's just what a lot of them say. It's just the... After 24 hours is when you need to start being concerned that it's a homicide investigation now, because that usually means they aren't coming home. Immediate, especially with a child, they could immediately take a report and start looking, but that's usually only with younger children who can't fare on their own. Of course, they're probably telling them, the cops, like, well, no, she's not a runaway. She wouldn't run away. And the cops like, that's what every parent says. Exactly, yeah. And I mean, like, a huge portion of people reported missing come back. 
especially teenagers. That's why they usually wait. They're going to be back in six hours. I'm not going to waste my time filing this report just to throw it in the garbage can. That's part of the job there, Mr. Spanish Fort police officer. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a problem in cases like this prove that it, they need to take them seriously, but it doesn't happen that way. They made flyers and placed them around Spanish Fork, hoping someone would see Kiplin and recognize her. She had curly red hair and blue eyes, making her easy to spot if you'd seen a photo of her before. And this was in 95? Mm-hmm. She had, like, your typical 90s hairdo. Like, it was permed, and she had the little bangs that were flayed in and hairsprayed, like... Well, Rory had curly red hair and blue eyes, so I'm just saying... Yours if he was, was like, in Utah, you could have mistaked him for her. You could have. Hers was not as, like, neon red as yours was. And I was an eight-year-old boy. They also began calling friends again, eventually getting in contact with one of Kiplin's close friends, Eli Henson. He'd seen her shortly after lunchtime, hanging around with a guy named Chris Jepson. The two were doing some sort of dance move, most likely something related to their drama class, where Chris was a light and sound tech. Eli told Tamara that he didn't have a good feeling seeing the two together and hoped they weren't involved. Kiplin wasn't allowed to date until she was 16, so if she was in some sort of relationship, she wouldn't have told her parents about it. Yeah, and it would have just been a whole lot of drama. Hoping to figure out exactly what was going on between the two, Richard and Tamara looked through Kiplin's diary. There, they found different entries where Kiplin discussed having a huge crush on Chris and that she'd hugged and kissed him. What? can't do that in Mormon town. That is uh, pretty much a sin. Not till you're 16. Not till you're 16. Richard hopped in the car and drove to Chris's house to question him. The only one home was his sister, who told Richard he'd been at school all day and was still there setting up for a play. Mm-hmm. Richard hopped back in the car and went to the school, where he found every door locked and no lights on. Someone was lying, and now he had a really bad feeling. Aren't even some lights on in a school in the middle of the night, like security lights and stuff? I don't know. Around 1 a.m., Richard and Tamara decided to go back to Chris's house to see if he'd shown up. There were lights on inside, and alongside Chris's truck in the driveway was another car that they recognized. It belonged to Rucker Leafson, a former classmate of Kiplin's. That's such a turd person's name. Rucker. Rucker. Richard debates for a while if he should go knock on the door, but is eventually overruled by his politeness and decides to go home. The next morning, around 7.30, the school's resource officer stops by his office to check his voicemails before heading to the high school. He hears the news of Kiplin's disappearance and knows that it's up to him to act. So did he, this actually do any good? I mean, it got the actual police interested and invested in the case. Yes, he did. When he arrives at the school, he goes to every single class and tells the students that if they heard or saw anything, they need to come forward and help them with the investigation. By midday, detectives were also on the case. Going off tips from the Davises and the school resource officer's knowledge of Chris Jepson, they pull him out of class to talk to him. He doesn't seem nervous and admits that he spent lunch with Kiplin the day before, practicing dance moves for an upcoming play. He backs up the story told to Richard by his sister the day before, saying he spent most of the night in the auditorium setting up for the play. He says he was there until around 11 p.m. and admits that he has keys so he can come and go when he needs to. Quite convenient, I would say, for this gentleman. I mean, it's not totally out of the ordinary. But wasn't the dad there at 11? Like, after 11? Yeah, but the door was locked. You're not going to... 
be in your school's auditorium with the door unlocked. Guess you're probably right. Why would you not lock the door behind you? These are our tax dollars at work, keeping these kids out at night. He also tells detectives that two of his friends stopped by to hang out, Rucker Leafson and Timmy Olson. Once he was finished setting up, the three left and went to his home. Detectives tracked down Rucker and Timmy, who gave them the same story as Chris. They had no choice but to move on and try to find other suspects. Yeah, I think we're done talking to Dick, Timmy, and Rucker. How how do you pull a suspect pool from a bunch of high school kids? Like, is there a process to that, or is it all just high school hearsay and gossip? It's mostly gossip. They knew Chris because, I mean, the school resource officer was around all the time, so he knew Chris and Kiplin were close and that they might have, like, a little relationship going. And he also knew that Chris was not the greatest student in the world, and so that's kind of where they started. But then after that, it's like, okay. Yeah. You can't just pick out the kids that skip class and smoke weed in the bathroom. Like, there's nothing you can really this do. This kid misses third period almost three times a month. He must be a murderer. Yeah, it's hard to create a suspect pool, basically. You got to just go pick the kid who thinks he's a dancer. It's always the one in the trench coat. The only good thing about high school students is that they don't ever shut the fuck up. So someone eventually is going to know something. After talking to other students, detectives hear about another student, Brandon Meyer. He was one of Kiplin's friends and apparently had a crush on her. The day before, he attempted to make a move, asking her on a date on Friday. According to other friends of Kiplin, the feelings were mutual and she had agreed to go out with him. Later that day, right around lunchtime, Brandon approached Kiplin again and explained that he was actually dating another girl who had found out he'd asked Kiplin out and was upset, so he had to cancel. That's an interesting way to go about it. He didn't know about that other girl earlier in the morning? I don't know. It was weird. How'd you find out? These kids can't shut the fuck up. He thought he was going to get to date two girls at school, at least for a day or two. So, Katie... You're an almost 16-year-old girl. You're at lunch in your high school. The boy who had a crush on you came and asked you out, and then a couple hours later came and said he couldn't take you out because he had a girl, another girl. How do you feel? What mindset are you in? Well, not you. You were never a child. <laughs> I would be angry, and I would tell his girlfriend that, I mean, if I knew he was dating another girl and he asked me out, I would just go tell her. What if she didn't know, but then she found out, and then would she go tell her? That he had asked me out? Yeah. Yeah. You say, your boyfriend's a piece of shit. Time to move on. Wow. You shouldn't be dictating other people's relationships like that, Katie. <laughs> I'm not going to keep it quiet that he's cheating on her or trying, but, but anyways. I guess what I was trying to get at was, do you think that she was in an emotional state of mind at this point? Yes. According to her friend, she was upset that he canceled the date and crying. I don't know how true the crying part is, but she was upset because she did like him. Well. And Chris. Kids these days, they cry about everything. This was in 95. <laughs> you could literally like multiple people at one time because you don't know what, you're like, what you like when you're 15. Like, but she was like dancing with Chris and kind of in a relationship with him. Ish. So it sounds like, you know, the kid who asked her out, they could have just, you know, gone and had some coffee, 
and then come back to their... Uh... That's cheating, Jake. No, I'm saying that they, they were both like, uh, maybe they were just trying to be friends. No, that's cheating. No, we asked her on a date. Oh. On Friday. A Friday date. Will you go on a date with me on Friday? When detectives looked into Brandon a bit more, they discovered that he had also missed his fourth and fifth period classes that day. He had also asked his girlfriend to change the attendance record, so it appeared that he had been in class. So, wait a minute. So his, he's dating faculty? No. How's his girlfriend going to get access to the... To so they the... pass the sign-in sheet around. She can just say that he was there. Oh. Or she did work in the office as a student aide. Well, these That's are things that too. you, uh, you know, in my school... He at least was the student aide, and <laughs> she reported you every time you didn't show up to the living room. <laughs> I would be like, yo, Elise, tell mom I'm there today. <laughs> yeah, mom, she'll never know. When they asked Brandon where he was, he explained that he felt so guilty about canceling the date with Kiplin, he tried finding her after lunch before fourth period started. After looking around for a while and not seeing her, he decided, fuck it, I'm already late for class, I might as well just go home. He was a senior, so this is like typical mindset. Senioritis. He claimed that he could back his story up because he'd gotten a flat tire on the drive home, and he called one of his friends to come help him fix it. His buddy was just a roadside mechanic, came over through a patch on the tire. They, of course, called the friend to verify the alibi, who said, yeah, no, none of that happened. I never helped him change his tire, and he never called me. With no evidence to go on and a gut feeling from the resource officer that Brandon wasn't involved, police had no choice but to move on. A lot of uh, shady shit lining up against Sir Brandon there. Circumstantial. All circumstantial. All circumstantial, but the circumstances... They continued making daily announcements, asking anyone with information to come forward to help find Kiplin, but the case was almost immediately cold. Because they ignored all their real leads. What are they going to do with that information? This Brandon guy is shady as fuck. You got to track him. You got to trace him. You got to follow him. You got to put wiretaps on him. You got you to gotta go through his trash. You got to know everything about him. You got to live inside his skin. And if necessary, I think that he did it, but let's continue on. Some students came forward and claimed to have seen her, but none of the sightings could be confirmed and many reports were later retracted. When police searched the school, they found all of Kiplin's belongings in her locker, including her makeup and retainer, two things she would never be without. Wherever she was, she didn't go there willingly. After two weeks with no information, the police and Davises agree to hold a nationwide press conference. Not only do they ask for help finding Kiplin, they also announce they're bringing the FBI on to help with the case. They're hopeful that whoever is responsible for her disappearance will be scared out of hiding and finally come forward. Rumors start to swirl around the school that Kiplin was sexually assaulted and murdered, but no one has proof and police can't substantiate any claims. So this is just a bunch of bullshit the kids started spreading around? Basically. I mean, they were right, but it was rumors at the time. The case goes silent for around a year when Chris Jepson comes back into the picture. One day, completely out of the blue, Chris shows up on the Davis doorstep and tells Richard he needs to get something off his chest. Rather than the confession Richard was expecting, Chris just tells him he had nothing to do with Kiplin's disappearance. Because that's the normal way to act if you didn't have anything to do with someone's disappearance, right? Yeah, exactly. 
You just have to reassure some people that you didn't do anything. <laughs> I woke up this morning and I was thinking that maybe you were thinking that I knew something that I didn't say that I knew. So I just want to come here and tell you I don't know anything. Richard calls him on his bullshit and starts telling Chris he knows what happened and he needs to tell him. But Chris keeps denying it and eventually takes off. Richard calls the police and tells them what happened, and their ears immediately perked up. It's highly unlikely a completely innocent person is going to show up at a missing girl's home and tell her father that he wasn't involved. They decide this is the perfect time to pull Chris, Rucker, and Timmy back in and question them to see how well their stories are holding up. How long has it been since this all happened at this point? A year? About? A little under a year, yeah. So they're trying to see if they are consistent now in their stories? Basically. And how'd that go for them? They bring Chris in first, who sticks by his story and surprisingly passes a polygraph. They move on to Timmy Olsen, who writes out a written statement before taking the test. Rather than the original story about being at the school all night with Chris and Rucker, Timmy explains that he had, in fact, seen Kiplin the day of her disappearance. He wrote that he and Rucker had driven her to Spanish Fork Canyon, and he waited in the car and watched them walk over the hillside together. Eventually, Rucker came back alone and told Timmy not to worry about it when he asked where Kiplin was. If someone ever, like, tells you, if you're like, where's so-and-so? And And they're like, don't worry about it. You should worry about it. Police were shocked by his admission and immediately tried getting more information out of him. But Timmy crumpled the piece of paper up, threw it away, told them he wanted a lawyer, and walked out. Police went out and grabbed Rucker before he caught wind of what Timmy had done. He denies everything, and like Chris, passes a polygraph. Police were back at square one, once again dealing with rumors that can't be verified. All because they put too much trust in the polygraph. Basically, yeah. I mean, just because they passed a polygraph doesn't mean jack shit. But this was 95 when we thought that they were, like, the best thing ever. 95 is also the time when a lot of movies came out showed you all you had to do was put a thumbtack under your toe to pass a polygraph. Or just clench your butthole. Ooh, yeah, clench the butthole. There's, like, a... I don't know his name, but this, like, CIA operative or some shit that used to do all the polygraphing for some big government agency, and he figured out that literally if you just clench your butthole at the right time, you can pass a polygraph with flying colors. That's why they make you sit on motion sensors now. I was going to say, can you imagine? They can sense when you tighten your butthole? They can sense when you, like, shift. Yeah, they make you literally sit on motion sensors. What if I don't move? So you can move. You have to sit completely still. I'm tightening my butthole right now. Do I look completely still? Yeah, but if you're sitting on a motion sensor, it's going to know. Not only that, they put those little sticky things right on your on your brown eye so they can tell when it flexes. You know, that's a weird metric they measure when you're doing that. Because he figured it out, and it's like, I'm pretty sure, very, very accurate. They just stick a meter on there, and they're like, nope, you clinched two and a half centimeters. You know what they say, the booty hole don't lie. Oh, is that why Shakira sang that song, Hips Don't Lie? <laughs> you can't move your hips while you're taking a polygraph. <laughs> they decided to start searching the canyon, hoping to find Kiplin's remains to fully solidify their case. After days of digging and searching with cadaver dogs, Kiplin still couldn't be located. Although they weren't giving up hope of finding her remains, the Davises had her legally declared dead and placed a headstone at a local cemetery to bring themselves some sort of closure. Six years went by with no progress on the case. 
In 2002, Richard learned of Elizabeth Smart's kidnapping and eventual safe return and felt the justice system hadn't treated his family as fairly as they did the Smarts. How would you measure that? Like, just because Elizabeth Smart was found safe? No, because she was a national staple on television, I guess. She was given, you know, a 24-hour follow on some 24-hour news cycles. Like, people were watching her case closely. So he was upset that his ginger daughter didn't get the the headlines that the blonde girl got. Is that what we're getting here? I mean, Elizabeth Smart was kidnapped from Salt Lake City, so he felt that because she came from a larger city that she got more attention and they acted a lot more quickly investigating than they did with Kiplin's case. He wrote a letter to the U.S. Attorney General, Utah Attorney General, his county attorney, and the Spanish Fork Chief of Police. He demanded a grand jury investigation feeling hopeful that Chris, Rucker, and Timmy will talk under oath, or there will at least be enough to charge them with something, even if it isn't murder. After two years of petitioning, the Assistant Attorney General of Utah opened a grand jury investigation. Hundreds of subpoenas were handed out to literally anyone who might have information, and the trial went on for two years. The first piece of information to come out was that Rucker had threatened Timmy after finding out about the written confession given 11 years earlier. They were also told an interesting story by Chris's ex-wife. Apparently one night while watching a movie, she playfully asked him what the worst thing he'd ever done was. He looked at her and said, what if I told you I killed Kiplin Davis? When she began freaking out, he convinced her that he was just kidding. This is why you don't ask questions you don't want answers to. Yeah, and it's also not a funny joke if he was kidding, which he was not. He was not kidding. But at the same time, if you're going to ask somebody this, and then they're going to unload that on you, you gotta go take. You got to go tell the cops, I think. I have a feeling she was used to it, because I imagine he approached her quite often and was like, I have to get something off my chest. I've never cheated on you. Right. (laughs) (laughs) She's just like, what do you mean? Did you cheat on me? (laughs) No, that's why I'm confessing not to have done that. Why I'm here, yeah. Timmy's friends also told of a confession he had made to them years ago at a party. When something came on the TV about Kiplin, they began asking him about it, knowing he'd been involved in the original investigation. Timmy basically told them that yes, he'd done it, she'd gotten what she deserved, and he knew where she was. He'd specifically said, I killed her. Wow. So That's a bad joke if it is a joke. I don't think it is, though. No, none of these are jokes. Like, obviously we know that these aren't jokes, but how fucking dumb. How, how dumb? Is he just trying to be cool? Like, Well, they were probably, like, asking him the question, and he was like, yeah, I, I killed her. But it was probably not like that at all. It was probably like, yeah, I killed her. She deserved it. Yeah, I think he was, like, in one of those probably joking, like, trying to seem cool and tough. She oh, yeah, she, she deserved, deserved it. And Uh, nobody believed any of these people who were all just, like, straight up telling the truth. Right, openly just telling the truth about what happened and just walking free because, you know, we don't take murder seriously. I don't know why the fuck, honestly. It's a little frustrating. Chris, Rucker, and Timmy all testified before the grand jury but maintained that they were completely innocent. Eventually, there was enough evidence to prove that they were at least lying under oath, and they were charged with perjury. Timmy, who had the most witnesses against him, was given the harshest punishment, 15 counts. He was found guilty and sentenced to 12 years in prison. Chris and Rucker were also found guilty and sentenced to 5 years and 4 years, respectively. 
Now that they were in prison, the DA decided to charge Timmy and Chris with first-degree murder. In 2009, Chris Jepson pleaded no contest to the lesser charge of obstruction of justice and received no further prison time. Timmy realized that he was backed into a corner and really had no other option but to confess. He told police that he himself wasn't involved, but he did watch an unnamed man hit and kill Kiplin with a rock. Later that night, they went back to the location and took her body to another area to bury her. Timmy pleaded guilty to felony manslaughter and was sentenced to 1 to 15 years to run concurrently with his perjury sentence. He refused to tell police or the Davises where she was buried. Rucker served out his sentence for perjury and was not charged with anything else. So Timmy just took the, the easy, weak way out, like, yeah, okay, bud, you, <laughs> wink, wink, weren't there. And he still refuses to say who this person he was with is. Because it's him. Yeah. Now to the most recent update we have on Kiplin's case. Timmy is still in prison, but recently came up for parole. Richard went to the hearing, telling Timmy that he would advocate for his release if he just told them where Kiplin's remains were located. A new law has also recently been enacted in Utah that prevents homicide convicts from being paroled if they have not helped investigators find or attempt, in good faith, to help locate the victim's body. Meaning you gotta cooperate. Mm-hmm. Timmy says that he truthfully does not know where her body is and has done everything he can to help find her. Most, including Richard and Tamara, don't believe him. Because he's a grown man going by Timmy. He'll be kept in prison until 2026, unless he reveals the location of Kiplin's body. Every single night since her disappearance, Richard and Tamara have left the porch light on. Richard vows to keep it on until Kiplin comes home. That's kind of sad. Very sad, yeah. Richard and Tamara both are, I mean, they've told Timmy numerous times that they will do everything they can to get him out of prison if he tells them where Kiplin is, and he refuses, so. It's kind of a huge piece of shit. They all are, now basically. Fuck all those guys. All right, so now this gets kind of weird. Back in 2020, the Utah Cold Case Coalition received a new ground-penetrating radar to help them search and recover bodies. Their first focus was on Kiplin's case. Rather than searching Spanish Fort Canyon, where Timmy said that she'd been buried, they started searching at a cemetery in Springville, Utah, around a 10-minute drive from Spanish Fork. Why'd they do that? Apparently, Kiplin's family knew of Chad Daybell. They were either some way friends with him or knew of him or were, I don't know, but he was involved in their life somehow. And if you aren't aware of who he is, he's the husband of Lori Vallow, and the two are involved in a massive case currently, both accused of killing Lori's two children and suspected of possibly killing, like, six other people. And burying the bodies, right? They definitely buried the children. They found the children. The other ones were, like, weird, suspicious, got kind of blown off as natural causes at first. Yeah, the brother, the husband, all that sort of shit, yeah. Yeah. They were both involved in some end-of-the-world cult and believe that the apocalypse is coming. It's way too much to describe here, but I'm sure most of you know it. We briefly talked about it in another episode, but there's a lot more information out now and a few podcasts that cover it. At the time of Kiplin's murder, Chad Daybell apparently worked as a grave digger in a Springville cemetery. I'm not sure how knowing Kiplin's family correlates to him knowing the people that killed her, 
but the Cold Case Coalition and a few others believe that Chad was involved in burying her body and may have actually placed it in a casket with another person while grave digging. So can that radar uh, technology that they got see into a casket and see if there's more than one body in it? Yeah. We coming for you! There's really not much information besides a single article on ABC4, and the search took place in April 2020, so I assume that nothing came of it. I still see some people discussing it, but many go off of the fact that Timmy not mentioning who killed Kiplin is possible proof that it was Chad Daybell. I don't know, I don't believe any of it, but I guess it's kind of an interesting conspiracy theory. It's weird synchronicities if the man was a grave digger and there was a murder. But it's like small town Utah. I think everyone knew everyone. That's it's a also fun probably angle. true. It's a fun angle. And it's also probably fun to be the grave digger in a small town in Utah. And it's just weird that this is like it's a Utah cold case coalition and this is the first thing they go to is somehow they involve Chad Daybell and Kiplin yeah. together. It's like yeah, it seems like they're kind of reaching, but is that going to do it for us this week, Katie? That is it, yes. All right, guys. Well, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to send us an email at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail.com. That's F-O-U-R cornerscrimecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash fourcornerscrimecast, on Instagram at fourcornerscrimecast, on Twitter at fourcornerscast, and at fourcornerscrimecast.tumblr.com. And... Don't forget to give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify and check out our website, fourcornerscrimecast.com. You can head over there for a full episode list or to let us know of an episode that you want to hear. Or, like so many of our fans, you can go to our uh, merch store, get yourself a sticker, type in the code Bingo Bango at checkout, and we'll send it out to you 100% for free. So, yeah, don't name your kids Rucker. He will be a murderer. This is true. Rucker's a stupid name. All right, we'll talk to you next week, guys. See ya. Adios, motherfuckers! Almost too old to be Well, we went there for a specific purpose, and it was to get our hats embroidered. <laughs> <laughs>